So just by way of review, God has shriveled Job up, was the phrase that Christopher Ash uses in his book that's been so helpful to me. He shriveled him up socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Job feels as though he is wasting away, but even wasting is too passive. He's being wasted away by the things that are being brought into his life. And he, he makes the point that he has an adversary, he has an enemy in heaven who is working against him. And the way Job is written, this is one of those times where God is using language in the Bible where it means one thing to the person who's saying it, to the author, to Job and whoever uh, captured the, the story of Job for the Bible. And it means something to the reader that even Job does not understand. So when Job says he has an enemy in heaven, that this onslaught is coming at him from the heavens, we know that he's right. And remember I said last week, he's just off by the tiniest of tweaks in terms of his understanding because the difference between the word he uses, assailant, I have an assailant in heaven, is the, well that's helpful, is the Hebrew equivalent of satam, the word for assailant. And we know from chapter 1 that the actual adversary that, he, that is bringing this against him is not the assailant, it is the accuser. It is Satan. And, and so often in Job, I think we as the reader are supposed to be brought to the point where we say, oh, Job is so close. He has almost everything he needs to be able to understand this rightly and to follow this faithfully. And Job, to his credit, has followed faithfully to this point. He's not sinned against God. And he's doing that with lots of incomplete information. We are also asked to be faithful in the crucible. We are also asked to respond to God appropriately in these times of crushing a, uh, a sail, to use that word, and what's the difference between us and Job? We know more than Job even knows. Now, we don't know the, the specific causal why of our suffering in a given moment. We have to be very careful thinking that we know exactly what God is doing with particular adversity. But we know who the accuser is we know it's not some generic assailant. We know that it's Satan. And we know that Satan is only able to work, only able to exert his power in our lives in as much as God designs and purposes for him to do for God's glory and for our ultimate glorification. And so we know this category of thing that Job could only see really, really dimly. And as we're reading Job together, we're thinking it is incredible 
how close Job comes to knowing more than God has even revealed. To know, I mean, the idea that he needs a mediator and that the mediator he needs needs to be man so that he can actually uh, intervene for, for Job, a man, but also actually needs to be God so that he can stand in front of God with some credibility and be able to mediate. How in the world does Job know that a couple thousand years before Christ? Job's case, 3,000 years before Christ. And yet... He's so close to understanding. And he gets there simply knowing the kind of God that God is. He gets there knowing what God has promised just in Abraham and the patriarchs. And we struggle to get there given the next 65 books of the Bible, as it were, post-Abraham. Uh, he needs that witness in heaven, we said, someone who will vindicate him. And Job wants both. And, and I think it gives us good permission to remember that uh, it's, it's right, <laughs> you've got to say this carefully, it's right for us to have a longing for both aspects of vindication. That doesn't mean we should spend an equal amount of time dwelling on these aspects. It doesn't mean that we are equally able to think rightly about both aspects, but they're both there. Job prays for both of them. They're both good. The first part of that, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify this, but you all will know what I mean. The first part is I'm right. I'm right. In Job's case, he is just before God. He is not perfect, but he is righteous. He is a good man, to use that sense of the book of Job. And his, uh, his goodness is what God affirms at the beginning of the book, and it's what God will affirm at the end of the book. Part of what Job wants is just to know he's not crazy. It's to know I am right. I'm not making this stuff up. What's the other part of vindication that Job asks for? He wants his accusers silenced. He wants those who are wrong and speaking evil against him, those who are doing injustice against Job. He, he, in this case, the way he says it is, remember, silence my miserable comforters. It's sort of a, uh, in Hebrew, it's the, the, they're breathing out misery, stop their breath. <laughs> you can interpret on multiple levels, I think. <laughs> um, th this comforting pep talk that Eliphaz is supposed to be giving his dear friend Job, who is a good, righteous man before God, is just a long sermon about how self-righteous you are and how arrogant you must be to deny my wisdom and the way of wisdom. And so Job, uh, we did talk last week, several of y'all weren't here when I mentioned it last week, but in Job 16, uh, Job does what Dale taught us to do in the last equip workshop. Job does an absolutely amazing mop in Job 16. 
he uses metaphors to describe what he's experiencing. He says he's seized by the neck and beaten. He's a target practice for archers, that he's just the, the giant foam target where the arrows come in. He talks about a city wall that is constantly beaten and besieged and is trying to stand firm but feels itself growing weaker and weaker and then eventually just crumbles to the ground. Um, he, he talks, this is the O is the other feelings. He talks about the ways this is making him feel. He talks about the despair of his spirit. And then he uh, talks about the physical manifestation of it. He talks about his body being broken. He talks about being battered. Um, all, all the language here is, hey, Job, how do you feel? And Job says, I'll tell you how I feel. And he goes right through it. And then he says, the, what I want, God, is to be vindicated both to be proven right and to have my enemies silenced and proven wrong. And that is the vindication that he's calling out for. Um, I mentioned this uh, last week, but it's where we stopped, so I want to pick up there. Renee, will you read chapter 16, starting in verse 18, and read through verse 1? O oh, earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Did you say 16? Yeah, right. 16, 18 to 17, 1. Uh, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. All right. The graveyard is ready for me. So what is Job talking about? That tells us what he's talking about in the verses leading up to it. So what is Job talking about? My death. He says, in a few years, I'll go the way of no return. He's talking about his death. And what he's saying is, when he dies, it will be the final step. I was going to say nail in the coffin, but that's probably a little too on point. It will be the final step of this incredible injustice. If Job's accusers are right, this is the kind of thing that should happen to a bad man, not a good man. This is what you deserve for evil, not for good. And so when Job dies, his death will have been an unjust death. What do we call an unjust death? If you kill somebody, you're not supposed to kill. It's a murder. So this is what Job is talking about. I will have been murdered. So uh, go back to the first murder in the Bible. What's the phrase we remember about that murder? He dies, he bleeds out, and the blood cries out for what? So Job is invoking Cain and Abel. That when he dies, it will be that manner of injustice, and his blood will cry out for vindication, that this is not what he deserves. And so what he's calling out for is that in the event where someone dies unjustly, 
We have the kind of God who even through that death will make it right. Vindication comes through the death of the innocent one. Wait, what? That's what Job just said. Job just said vindication comes because of the character of God through his response to the death of the innocent one. That's a pretty good invocation for a 3,000 year BC person to make, right? That's a pretty good recognition that what he needs is that kind of vindication. And I think it's really important. So he doesn't know, uh, Ash says, he doesn't know of what of whom he speaks, but he knows what is needed. And that's really, if you want to read the Old Testament carefully and think about what God revealed to his people when along the way, he did tell them what was going to happen. If you read the Old Testament cover to cover and it's all you ever have, you will see clearly from God the problem and what God will do to resolve the problem. It's going to be in, Isaiah, in the text in Isaiah over and over again. That's why we read them around Christmas time. The only thing God holds back is whom? In whom will this happen? And that's why, what is the first response in the Bible when Jesus walks onto the scene? What's well, said in different ways in different Gospels, because different Gospel writers do this, but what does John the Baptist say? Basically says there's God, right? Behold! The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. John wasn't waiting to find out what was going to happen. The hope of Israel, everything John and the remnant were waiting for, was going to be answered in a whom? Whom? I'm just waiting for him to come. And John sees him and he says, oh, oh, that's him. Uh, is it uh, Simeon who, sing, who, who has this experience and creates the song in the, in the Gospels? Just on beholding what he saw in the Christ child, the whom was answered for Simeon. And so he overflows with praise and writes this beautiful hymn that's recorded in the Gospels. Whom is why John doesn't start his gospel with the chronological, here's the baby we saw. He starts it with, in the beginning, God. And then the whole prologue to John's gospel is every story that I'm about to tell you is because he's God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word and the word and that's this guy and he came to dwell among us full of grace and truth and and on and on. The whole trajectory of the Old Testament is God having told his people what he's going to do and then waiting for the one who's going to do it. And so Job is this beautiful, incredibly early, historically, faithful follower of God who says, man, I know what I need. And I know because of the character of God what he will do. I'm just waiting on the one who will do it. Uh, 
another commentator, one y'all probably don't know, says the whole trauma of redemption centers around the antinomy between God's justice that is sometimes expressed in wrath towards sinful men and God's love that reaches out to redeem that same sinful man. And all of the confusion, all maybe too strong a word, but maybe not, all the confusion that we experience in the Christian life pretty much exists within the tension of us trying to reconcile those two things. That God is holy and just and comes in wrath against sin. That God, you know, as we said a few weeks ago from Isaiah, his hand is stretched out still. God cannot ignore sin and we should not want him to. We should not want to live in a world where there is no hope that God will do anything except ignore sin. That doesn't get us where even we should want to be. And that is very much in tension with the fact that God reaches out to redeem us. God loves us. God uh, does, I was talking with a friend the other day, she and her husband are going to come participate in the conference, the GROW conference that we're doing. And we were talking about uh, children, and specifically I'd asked about the trip to Hawaii, and how do you, several of, we've all, many of us have had this exact conversation before about different trips, but obviously we're getting ready to go on a once in a lifetime Hawaii. And I was saying to her, how do you give this to your children? How do you experience this with your children and not create entitled children? And as you're trying to do that, how do you not suck the joy out of the event itself? (laughs) How do you let them be overwhelmed with how great this opportunity is? How do you not crush their expression of the things they would like to do? They see a thing they'd like to do in this once-in-a-lifetime place, and they say, can we do such and such? And as a dad, your first response is, this is the treat. How dare you want an ice cream while we're here? So how, how do you balance giving them that and not creating entitled children. And she looked at me and said, if you, an earthly father, know how to give your children good gifts, like trips to Hawaii, how much more will your father who is in heaven know how to give better gifts, like grateful hearts? Huh. Right? Um, we forget, and, and not, not for a, a lack of reason. I hope you never hear me say that our lives are all so good, we should never in the flesh have one second of doubt about God's love or goodness. Or, uh, that has not been our experience. <laughs> And, and he tells us why later. In the New Testament, he does unfold that for us, that Christ doesn't come. The way that Christ brings us abundant life is not the way we would have picked, where Christ says, boom, abundant life. You actually have to be buried with him, because until yourself dies and is buried with him, you can't inherit that abundant life. You, in the flesh, even Job being a good man, is not worthy of that life. And so he has to be buried with Christ. He has to die so that he can be raised with Christ. And these promises can can be fulfilled. 
we have lots of good reasons. Not, mm, there are lots of reasonable things that make us doubt in the flesh the goodness of God and that God is for us. And when we're not in the depth of that pit, it's a really good time to steal our minds. I mentioned last week in the sermon, keeping a journal of God's faithfulness, whether written down or just in your brain, of kind of the Ebenezers in your life, the places where God did something, where he parted a Red Sea, that there's just no way you're getting through this, and God does something unbelievable. Because you need those. You need to have memorized the scriptures. This is one of the reasons why I think some of the old hymns are so great. Uh, Not even necessarily that the words are always better than the new hymns, but that they were with us before. (laughs) We memorized those words before we went through the fiery trial. And then when we went through the fiery trial, those were the words that God brought back to us so that we could, when we felt somewhere on the spectrum where Job is, grab onto what is true, grab onto God's promises and his goodness, both remembering what God did big picture for his people and remembering what God did small picture very specifically for us. And I think this tension is what I'm really trying to get at. So I, I, I wish I had clarified these thoughts a little better. But I'm, this tension of Job 16 and 17 is what I'm trying to get at because Job knows what God will do. He knows what he needs and he actually believes God will do it. Job has the right kind of hope that can only come by faith in God. In this, Job does not sin. And yet, uh, he is in crushing despair. (laughs) He, He doesn't hesitate to say both. Uh, read verse 1 again, Renee, 17.1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. He just said, I know I'm innocent. When I die, it will be murder. And I know God will vindicate me. There is one in heaven who will. He said all that. And then he said, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm done, guys. <laughs> I am mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically spent. Derek Thomas says, confident though he may be about vindication in the life to come, he cannot muster any hope for the present. And, and that is when, so let's go back for a moment and put on our comfortor hats where we're thinking about comforting others which is I think one of the most helpful things we can take away from the book of Job is how to be faithful comforters rather than these breathers out of trouble Um, that's the moment where what Job needs is them to shut up their nonsense (laughs) But from a comforter who hadn't been spouting this nonsense, Job needs a hug and somebody to sit with him and weep. It would be easy to listen to what Job says. And some of us in this room, me, Stephen, John, Drew, but Renee, would listen to what Job says and say, well, yeah, there was some good stuff in there, but here's this other stuff he just said. So let's make sure we can go fix that and get that right. Job, we got to get your head screwed on straight here. 
And we would set aside emotionally how crushing the despair is for Job. And what we're supposed to do is hear, no, no, no. He's got it. He really does have it. He knows what is needed, and he believes God will do it. Because God is just. He doesn't believe his idiot friends. (laughs) And he's just crushed in spirit. And in this life, that is a real and a real faithful place. In the world that is to come, we'll never have both. Because we see all things rightly, and because all things are made new, and because our faith is made perfect, we will not have that anguish, despair. But in this life, they live together. That's the tension. That's the tension of this part of Job. He knows what he believes, what he believes is right, and he still feels really, really bad. He has hope for the future, real hope for eternity. And no hope for the next five minutes. (laughs) Derek Thomas says, as long as we can do what Job did, there is hope. You think, what? Job's sitting on a pile of burning dung, complaining about his friends and talking about how he wants to die. And he says, To know that there is one in heaven who pleads for us as for his friends is what's required. That's that's the one thing. Um, Does he have someone in heaven pleading for him? He he doesn't know how. And and, and so time is a tricky thing too, right? (laughs) Job is experiencing this linearly as we experience time. God's plan is extremely comprehensive. It's an unfolding thing. Uh, Job is right. There is no final state of things where Job is not vindicated. Not if God is God. And that's why Job is so confident. And that's why Job is so ambivalent as to when that will come. (laughs) No, not at all. In fact, he's 100% certain. He's wrong, obviously, because we know the rest of the book. But he's 100% certain he won't be vindicated in this life. He is saying to himself, I will never feel joy in this life again. Is that when he talks a bit about the seal and his hopes going down? Yeah. Yeah, he he is 100% sure, which is, I mean, that's a good corrective for us too, right? Because we know the end of the story. Right. It would have been okay in terms of God would still be God. So if we consider the options, if Job never gets vindicated, God is not God. Right? Does everybody see why that would be the case? Because his friends are wrong. Job has not brought this upon himself. This is not reaping what you've sown. This is reaping what you did not sow. The, The... It's hard for us, but that's the parameters of the book of Job itself. Because we want the wiggle room of nobody's perfect, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, and that's not the point here. The point here is the bookends of this whole book are God calling Job righteous. So if Job is never vindicated, God is not God. 
And that's why Job's able to fight his friends so strongly. It's because what they think Job is defending is his own character. Well, Job knows he's innocent, and he knows that he can't convince them of that. Why Job really gets so animated with his friend in this round of friends in this round of speeches is that if they're right, God is not God. Especially when we get into the next chapter, into 18, when, um, what's his name, Bildad is so certain about hell, and everything Bildad believes about hell is right, and the only thing Bildad is wrong about in the entire chapter is that Job isn't going there. And so that's, you know, Job's in this very tough position where what it seems like Job must defend is Job. But in part, and and Job is defending himself, but Job is also defending God. If Job is not vindicated, God is not God. Now, does Job have to be vindicated in this life for God to be God? Cain and Abel, right? Go back to the first one. (laughs) A little too late for that vindication, right? So what Job says is, I know God will vindicate me eventually because God will vindicate himself and I'll be a byproduct of that, my vindication. Where Job is wrong, not sinful, but incorrect, is Job says, I will not be vindicated in this life. I'm about to be murdered. That vindication will not come. And then God parts a Red Sea and restores Job the way he did. And so what you were saying earlier is Job got to that point where he could say that God will vindicate him just based on his knowledge of what had happened like with Abraham and the, what he knew of God's history at that point in time. So he got there. And, and, and yes, and not to Jesus, Duke, but just because I'm going on the Internet and have to be precise. <laughs> He got there because God gave him faith the same way God gave Abraham faith. Job has received the gift of faith and has been credited to him as righteousness. And through that lens of faith, Job can go back through whatever details he knows of the story of God in the patriarchs and in Job's own life and say, I know my Redeemer lives. Which is the reason I keep bringing that up. That's the next speech, guys. That famous, I know my Redeemer lives, is the next speech. It's in response to his friend telling him about the doctrine of hell and how you're going there. I mean, it's an amazing turn of events. Um, So that's all in this category. But also held in tension that's what Christian life is, is holding competing things in tension, is this second category. Uh, Andrew, will you read 17, 2 through 5? Yes. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who, who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. So what, what's that about? The one I didn't circle here, right? <laughs> That's the other type of vindication that justice cries out for. These bozos can't be right. 
the mockers cannot prevail. So there's an Old Testament law, uh, Deuteronomy-ish. No, it's definitely in Deuteronomy. It's probably 19, it's probably 19-ish. Um, but it's the law about making false accusations. And the Old Testament law was, if you falsely accuse someone, do you know what punishment you get if that's found out? Nope. You get the punishment they would have gotten had they been guilty of the crime you accused them. It's this incredible way where God, just in his wisdom, keeps the incentives properly aligned and keeps the stakes. So if I want to accuse you of a small-scale thing, maybe I'm willing to take the risk of the small-scale punishment. But if I want to accuse you of being a murderer, I better be ready to get stoned. The more serious the accusation, the more serious you better be about making it. It's just this amazing balance. And, and what Job is saying here is, God, I need you to be my bondsman. <laughs> because accusations have been made against me. And I need you, God, to put up surety so that when I'm vindicated, the punishment that was going to be meted out on me is meted out on them. Uh, and so he gets. And, and I think this is just me speculating. Don't quote this one on the internet. I, I feel this similarly the way I do about like the Psalms of Lament in the Bible or about wisdom, um, Solomon's speeches in Ecclesiastes. The Bible can say something that's true and useful, but the ratio of how often it says it is supposed to be a clue to us that that shouldn't be a focus, right? The sins it talks about more we should probably be more on guard against and think about in the Bible. It doesn't mean those other things aren't sin, but there's a reason the Bible talks 90 gajillion times about certain sins like gossip and where uh, love of money will lead us. And I think here, Job, both of these are absolutely true components of justice, of vindication. Job talks about both of them. He prays for both of them. He longs for both of them. 90% of his attention is here. 10% of it is punish the bozos who falsely accuse me. 90% of it is, God, I'm right. Vindicate the truth, not just uh, punish these bozos. Make no mistake, with all of this truth bouncing around Job's head, it's really bad now. Where he is right now is a really bad dark place and the way that Job will persevere is not by believing that he will persevere because we just said it Job doesn't believe he's going to persevere Job believes he's going to die so what perseveres Job cannot be Job's confidence in perseverance no what perseveres Job is his confidence in God it cannot be as my friends say. Whether in this life, but definitely the next, it cannot be because my confidence is in God. And that is the pin prick of hope. And I, I pray that when we are comforting people in regards to their circumstances, 
that we are not spending very much time talking about their circumstances. We're listening to them talk about their circumstances. Those are very real and present for them, and we should not chastise them for talking about the thing that they see the most clearly, which is the thing that's right in front of them. That's how we understand where they are. Remember, all of this in comfort is if our goal is to get them from where they are way over here to joy in Christ. That's our goal. You can't get them there. You can't draw the map, the path, if you don't know where they're starting. So we listen to them talk about their circumstances so that we can help bring them over there. But when we talk to them, we don't talk so much about their circumstances. We Think about the catchphrases related to each one of these areas. You know, when we're talking about their circumstances and we're being bad comforters, what are the things we say? I know how you feel. I know how you feel. I've been there before. That sounds like a good thing to say, doesn't it? It really does. It certainly comes from a sympathetic place. But you're minimizing their circumstances. It has the effect. It's not your intent. It has the effect of minimizing your circumstances. It's just a nicer, more thoughtful way of saying, well, at least it really is. When we're talking about their circumstances, we want to make things not seem so bad. And we're doing that from a good place. But that's not what we're called to do, is to be the judge of the quality of their circumstances. What we're called to do is to be a witness to the greatness of their God and the perfection of their God. I can't tell you that you're not literally in the worst circumstance any human has ever been in. In the back of my mind, I don't think so. Seems like you're a little whiny. <laughs> but they may well be in the pit. It's the joke I made with Daphne's grandmother a long time ago. It was bad joke, bad timing, and I paid for it dearly. But um, she said, and she was joking, but she said, well, you just think you're the smartest person in the world, don't you? And do you know what I said? Yes. I said, well, no. I said, well, <laughs> I didn't say it quite that directly. I said, well, just if you think reasonably for a minute, Somebody has to be. There is truly one person right now who is the smartest person alive. Are you saying it can't be me? Right? I think that was worse. Right? So it's like, whoa, that is for uh, That person in their suffering is probably not in the darkest hole that anyone in human existence has ever been in outside of Christ. But you have to allow... Somebody's has to be. Somebody somewhere has to have had the worst suffering outside of Christ that any human who could ever have. So it's at least possible. That's not the business we're in and comforting. We're not to evaluate their circumstances and tell them whether their response is reasonable. We're to bear witness, clear witness, to the greatness and perfection of our God so that regardless of their circumstances, there is a pinprick of light shining through. 
and they, like Job, can say, I'm too far gone. I can never be vindicated in this life. Can't happen. I'm about to be murdered. But I know that that God you described, he will vindicate. That that is, it seems like such a small difference. It's the whole ballgame. It's the whole ballgame between hope and hopelessness. It's not the depths of your despair. It is your view of the greatness and perfection of your God and his justice. That's the whole thing. Derek Thomas says the closing verses are a reminder to us of how far God may let us fall. We are assured that his hold of us is secure, but at times he allows his children to experience real despair and hopelessness. It is, after all, the way the Savior went, being made to feel the anguish of being forsaken by God. What does David say in the psalm? What does Jesus say in fulfillment on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's very difficult (laughs) to imagine that you will be united with Christ, given union with him, that you will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that you will become a part of the body of Christ, which he is the head. That you will have your entire identity in Christ. And that you will not know anything of these events in Christ's life that brought him to glory. You want to skip the parts that make Christ Christ and just be Christ. <laughs> but that's not how Christ's likeness works. It's this This path that goes all the way down into the grave. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Uh, Daphne, can you turn to Luke and John? Can you turn to Romans? Luke 22, Romans 8. Luke 22, 32. Romans 8.34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. We don't have time for the context of both those passages. But here's the point, And go look at it yourself this afternoon. When you are in these moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doubting the goodness of God being overwhelmed by the circumstances. When you are in these moments, what do you feel like doing with respect to God, with respect to Christ? Do you feel like getting closer? You feel like running away. You feel like hiding your face from him. And it's a self-fulfilling thing. 
because part of it is I'm mad at you because you allowed this to happen. Part of it is I'm ashamed of my sin that I'm mad at you because you're God and I'm not supposed to be mad at you because I know you're good. And then all these complex feelings swirling around our brain and the net effect of all of those feelings is that when we're in these moments, what we feel like doing and our tendency is to go further from God. And in both those texts, Luke 22, Romans 8, they both deal with people who are in that kind of moment and the advice that Jesus gives and that Paul gives is Christ, closer to Christ, follow Christ, find Christ, go to Christ. Nothing will get you out of this except closer to Christ, more Christ. And it is, you'll see, I mean, the beauty of the book of Job, not the experience of Job, is watching him wrestle with that. Where Job leans into God and his perfection. And then Job says, yeah, but my circumstances are hopeless. I'm doomed. There is nothing about my life at this point that would suggest that God loves me. And just watching that tension is a, should be a comfort to us that that behavior is not so bad that it causes God to be done with us. And it should be a little bit of a kick in the pants in that, yeah, I need to push him closer to God, not push him further away. Questions, thoughts about that, Andrew? Yeah, so thought on that one. It's interesting how, how tricky, at least in my mind, can be on that because situation, you know, there is a, a friend, hypothetically. I'm angry with them. I need to forgive them, so on and so forth. Uh, it is easy to go to the action of forgiving them rather than first going to Christ as a way to try to make myself feel better. Um, and it's just interesting to me how even doing a good, you know, that's a good fruit. But without the root, it doesn't make you feel better. And what will you do if the, f- if the friend makes it worse? Yeah, exactly. Or if the friend doesn't repent, or if the friend doesn't think they need forgiveness, or the, or, right, the, the, it's, it's why um, we're supposed to think of all sin and forgiveness vertically first before horizontally. Because there will be those cases where the person who aggrieved us never uh, sins. And there will be those cases where when we, uh, never forgives us. And when we've sinned against someone and they never forgive us. Yeah. And so what do you do? What do you do with a sin where the other person won't forgive? Well, that repentance to the person is merely the fruit of the fact that I've already repented before God and received that forgiveness. And that is enough. I want this other, but that is enough. That's how we need to be able to forgive uh, people and accept forgiveness from people who are dead. There are people in our lives we send against that we will never get the opportunity to repent before them. So are we just supposed to live forever with that burden of guilt? No. The vertical forgiveness from God is what relieves that burden of guilt. Other questions? I think uh, before studying this, um, it was easy to believe that, well, a lot of times we're comforting people who don't have, I'll call it good theology, and it seemed like the answer to comfort them was to give them good theology. Like, that's the issue, Mm -hmm. but that's, even if they had good theology, there's more that needs to be done. Like, that's not the answer. That's not the complete answer to comforting them. Uh, yes, I'm agreeing with you. I'm gonna let me let me nitpick for my teaching purposes. 
I think part of our problem is when we comfort people in that case, we don't just want to give them good theology, we want to give them all the theology. So we want to give them good and complete theology. And what they need is good, very, very narrow theology. They need a vision of the perfection of God. All of his attributes, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, that they will be vindicated. They need the vision of God. They don't need us to walk them through Romans 8.28. They don't need us to talk about how to interpret your circumstances. They don't need a lecture on Paul learning to be content in all circumstances. Are those not just true, but for the mature believer, are those not just, those are helpful. That's incredible. It is a, it has become recently a huge help to me to remember that the context in which Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, is contentment. The context of that verse is contentment. I can be content when there's plenty. I can be content when I'm in want. Contentment. That's when I can do it. So, yeah, super helpful. If they don't have that vision, though, of God, <laughs> that's the only thing theologically, and we do them no good to try to take them there if we have not listened to their circumstances and been sympathetic with their circumstances.